Welcome again to Christ the King on this third Sunday in the season of Advent. Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And as always here, you'll find it helpful to keep the Bible open to that text as we go this morning. We've been working quite hard over the last few months, and we're going to be working hard again this morning to continue our way into this written sermon called Hebrews. If you were here last week, you would recall probably that we arrived last week at the central large section of the book of Hebrews. It began in verse 14 of chapter 4, and we said that this big central section of Hebrews goes from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. And that in that big central section of Hebrews, we find what I suggested is the heartbeat of this sermon, that Christ is high priest and offering So just to bring you back into the headspace of where we were, let's go back and read verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 again. If you have it in front of you, look at it as we do that. The pastor writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I suggested to you that at that point, the main point of Hebrews is now clear. We have a great high priest That's why we can hold fast our confession, the pastor says. That's why we can draw near to the throne to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this morning, let me pause just for a moment to make sure that we are at least getting something basic here. The pastor of Hebrews more or less simply assumes this. And what I'm about to talk about briefly is essentially Christianity 101, I suppose you could say, but I think it's important for it to say it this morning. The passage that we'll look at in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5 has lots of complexity in it, so I'd like to at least start with something basic. Here's my question. Why do we need a great high priest? The fact that we have a great high priest the nature of that great high priest, the effectiveness of that great high priest. I mean, this is, these are the things that will be consuming our study of Hebrews for a, a while you know, and now. I want to start this morning by making sure we grasp why we need one. Or maybe to put the question a bit more personally, do you think you do need a great high priest? Do you think your neighbor or your co-worker or your unbelieving family member needs a great high priest? Do you? Why, if you do? How would you go about explaining this? Why do we need a great high priest? Well, I'll give you this 
short, but I believe biblically sound answer that emerges from Hebrews, but not in so many words. The reason we need a great high priest, why this becomes the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews, is, I think, because of the intersection of two foundational assertions made in the scriptures. Number one, God is holy. And number two, God promises that by faith, you and I will enter into his holy presence for eternity. God is holy and God promises that we will be with him if we have faith. So I suggest to you that those two facts brought together mean we need a great high priest. We've been talking in Hebrews about this promise that we'll enter God's presence. It's, it's what we mean when we are using this language of salvation, right? We've been through this once or twice already. We see it again in our passage in verse 9 where the text says that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. We're talking about life with God in a place. It's what Jesus regularly refers to as eternal life in the Gospels. That's how it's described in what is probably the best known verse of the Bible, right? John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise. Life with God in a place forever question is, how does that happen? What does it take for you and I to be able to dwell with God? To dwell with the one called holy, holy, holy by the cherubim who circle his throne. The one whom our pastor in chapter 12, verse 29 of Hebrews calls a consuming fire. The God concerning whom Habakkuk wrote, in Habakkuk 1, verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The one who said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The fundamental issue of the Bible is that you and I and all human beings were made to dwell with God forever, to have dominion in his image in the good world he created, and that's precisely what has not happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is sin. Which means what we need is a great high priest, because if this remains the creative purpose of God, for us to dwell with him forever, to have dominion as his image in his created world, I submit to you that that is what the Bible says, then something has to be done about our sins, brothers and sisters. Which, of course, was a concept that was built in to the, the practice of and among the people of Israel. There were a lot of high priests in Israel. Look at verse 1 of our passage, Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, meaning here from among human beings, is appointed to act 
on behalf of men and women, in relation to God. Why say that? What needed to be done? What's the problem that we have in relation to God? What's the thing that every high priest has to do? The answer is here, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 5. Every high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right, because the problem we have in relation to God is that we're sinful. I mean, I realize this is, this is Christianity 101, but it is the constant refrain of the scriptures. There is no distinction, Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 22, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul sums it up by saying, the wages of sin is death. So that if our sin isn't dealt with, then what we end up with is the opposite of salvation. The opposite of this life with God in a place forever. We end up in death. What the Bible calls hell. The second death. The death beyond death that we talked about several weeks ago. It is separation from God. So that... The central point of Hebrews is to say this. The Son of God was appointed priest. Of course, as we've seen and as we'll again see this morning, that vocation required then that he become a man. In order to do what? Chapter 5, verse 1 says, every high priest was appointed to do, to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God. Only as we'll see some of this morning, the way Jesus would do that would be in a way that surpasses all the high priests that ever came before him. What our passage this morning teaches, or at least reinforces for us, is that Jesus Christ is the priest, capital P, and that as such, he surpasses all the high priests of Israel. Not because the high priests of Israel somehow failed to do their job the right way. Some of them weren't, weren't great. But because all along, the high priests of Israel were only the, the copies. They were only the shadows, to borrow terminology that we're coming to a little later on in Hebrews. They were the copies and the shadows of who Jesus Christ, the priest, would be. What he would accomplish. This becomes integral to the argument of Hebrews, this relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant accomplished in Jesus. We're going to see this unfolding more and more as we go. So now as we turn to examine our text, let me explain it to you first structurally. That way, if the details go past you as we go, you have, you have somewhere to, to land in, in the outline here. Hebrews 5 verses 1 to 10 divides here into two parts with a hinge in the middle. Verses 1 to 3, I think the pastor considers here the insufficient ministry of the old high priest the Old Covenant high priest. And then in verses 7 to 10, the pastor considers the sufficient ministry of the new high priest, the priest, Jesus Christ. 
That's the, the major point and contrast of this chapter. There's the insufficient ministry of the old high priest versus the sufficient ministry of the new high priest. Between those two parts is the hinge in verses 4 to 6 that focuses on a point of comparison. How can the pastor call the Lord Jesus Christ a high priest? Well, namely, it's because he was appointed by the same God who called all the high priests in the Old Testament. So we'll see that in a little bit. This is not within Hebrews the first time that we encounter the idea of the Son of God as priest. We, we considered a little bit of, of that last week earlier in the book. But in chapter 5 verses 1 to 10 it is the first time where we have the explicit contrast of the great high priest Jesus the Son of God with all the high priests of Israel. And if you just look at where we're starting in verse 1 and where we're ending in verse 10, you see what we have to do somehow in the next while. We have to go from every high priest chosen among men in verse 1 to Christ who in verse 10 is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which means there's a whole lot of ground to try and cover in these 10 verses. So, We'll look at them as closely as we can now in the time that I have left to do that. That's the structure. Let's try it. Verses 1 to 3. The pastor here is considering, I think, the insufficient ministry of the Old Covenant high priests. There were lots of them over time. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Such is the reality that the pastor sketches here of the high priest's ministry under the old covenant. It was fundamentally insufficient, is what I'm suggesting is the point. To see that, or to, for me, I'm going to try and argue for that, to see that now, look at three things about the old covenant high priest. First, in the beginning of verse 2, I think we see that the old high priest's ministry was ineffective. The pastor says there in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, which was certainly the right thing for the Aaronic, that is in the line of Aaron, the Aaronic high priest to do, to deal gently with those under his ministry. But the point seems to be that by its nature, the ministry of the Old Covenant high priest was simply inadequate to address human sinfulness. All he could do is deal gently with the sinner. Contrast that with what we read a little earlier in verse 15 of chapter 4, just before this. You remember that. It says, Christ, our great high priest, says of him, for we do not have a high priest who is un." able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that, that's, that's saying something different than verse 2 of chapter 5 is saying. The point being, all the other high priests, they couldn't sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ can 
So whatever verse 2 of chapter 5 means, it doesn't mean the same thing as verse 15 of chapter 4. Well, we explained last week how what verse 15 of chapter 4 meant was that Christ didn't just emotionally identify with us somehow, but that Jesus really has experienced our weaknesses, yet without sin. Meaning that he can, in fact, deliver us from our weaknesses, that he can provide the grace we need to endure temptation and testing despite those weaknesses. That was the point there, you remember. Not so the old covenant high priest. He can but deal gently. Literally, that means he can restrain his anger against the offender. That's what this means. He should do that. Why? Because the old covenant high priest knows exactly what it's like to fall into temptation itself. That this becomes the point of the weakness language in this context. That's what makes him understanding, but that's all he can be, you see. He has no ability to deliver his people from sin. He, he has no power to remove the barrier that separates them from God. Therefore, those to whom he ministers, verse 2 says, are the ignorant and wayward. Now, the contrast to all this is in verse 9, where we see Christ has become the source of eternal salvation. Not to those who are going astray, but to those who obey him. It's fundamentally different. Christ's high priestly ministry brings about, effects the successful obedience of those under him. Do you see? We'll say more about that, I hope. The point here is not so the old high priest. His ministry is fundamentally ineffective, though compassionate. Secondly, then, the pastor goes on here to explain that this ineffectiveness was due to the fact that the old high priest was sinful. He was beset with weakness, the pastor writes in the second part of verse 2. And it was a debilitating weakness. This is the point here. The language is critical. The nuancing is tricky, but the word beset could be translated, he was clothed in it or burdened by it. He was clothed in weakness, burdened by weakness. That was not precisely what was said about Christ in verse 15 of chapter 4. The pastor said there that our great high priest can actually sympathize with our weaknesses, which makes sense because he experienced them. He was tempted in every respect. He was subject to the same human limitations that we are. But there's a distinction here that's a bit hard to see, but it it doesn't say that Christ was clothed with or burdened with weakness in this way. This weakness did not determine the course of Christ's life. The contrast comes in verse 8 of our passage where it says Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Precisely the opposite of the old high priest in this regard. Jesus' life was not determined by sinful weaknesses, but rather by the practice of godly obedience. 
One commentator explains that in verse 2, the pastor is, quote, now speaking of that weakness, which is the consequence not so much of human nature as of human depravity, which, of course, Jesus did not share. This sinful weakness identifies the Aaronic high priest with our human sinfulness, but sets him in contrast to the one tempted without sin. You see? The old high priest's ministry is ineffective because he is sinful, beset with weakness. So then thirdly, verse 3 then brings us to the, that old covenant high priest's offering. Because in light of the two things I just said, the point here has to be that the old covenant high priest had to make sacrifices not only for the people, but for himself, for his own sins. Right? Because of this, the pastor writes, verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. That's obviously true. You can read about it in the Leviticus regarding the Day of Atonement sacrifices. It's true on other days as well. He has to make an offering for himself that was for his own sin. Of course, that's in contrast to Christ, who didn't have to do that. He was without sin. Which means then, if I'm reading this rightly, that the point is that Christ's offering, because there is an offering, it wasn't for himself. We'll see that in a minute in verse 7. Jesus didn't offer sacrifices for himself. Rather, he offered himself as the sacrifice for others. This is verse, verses 1 to 3. The old priest's ministry while compassionate in character, while symbolic of the need to deal with sin, while a shadow and a copy of what the reality would be in Jesus was ultimately insufficient. He could do nothing about the weaknesses of his people because he too was beset by them, requiring that he offer sacrifices, in fact, for himself. Another high priest was needed. Which brings us to the hinge in verses 4 to 6. And I can't figure out how to talk about this with enough oomph. So I'll try. But remembering that verses 1 to 3 and verses 7 to 10 form this set of contrast now between the old and the new high priest. What you've got going on in verses 4 to 6 are in one sense a point of similarity. There's a connection being made. This is the bridge, if you will between the old and the new. And what it is that connects them, according to the pastor, is with regard to how they are designated high priest. I mean, verse 1 talked about how high priests were chosen and were appointed. Verse 4 here returns to that theme. It says, and no one takes this honor of being high priest for himself, verse 4 says, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then right away, the pastor turns the corner into verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a, high, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews is getting strange. <laughs> Here's the key. To feel the oomph, 
the, the full force of this, you have to connect this back to chapter 1. If you've been with us from the beginning of Hebrews, something should feel familiar about this scene. We've been here before, haven't we? God speaking to Christ in the words of Psalms, in Christ's exaltation. What's happening is here, the pastor is now revealing an additional dimension of a moment that was already celebrated in Hebrews chapter 1. If you look back at Hebrews 1 verse 5, immediately following the opening section of four verses there, we find ourselves then in the heavenly throne room. Remember this? We're there, so to speak, at the moment of Jesus' enthronement in the heavenly realm. When, as verse 3 says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what we're picturing. And do you remember how the pastor began the heavenly scene in verse 5? What does he do? He quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Same passage as we just read in. Hebrews 5. The, that psalm was originally about King David, of course, but now in Hebrews 1, it's, it's, it's in the context of the enthronement of Jesus Christ in heaven. This is David's exalted Lord we're talking about. And in chapter 1, if you just follow down in chapter 1, you, you go through this litany of praise. The conclusion of it comes in verse 13, where God speaks words from Psalm 110. Here, it's verse 1 in chapter 1, verse 13, Psalm 110, verse 1. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So you see the point in chapter 1 is clear. This ascended man, Jesus Christ, now sits with God in heaven as the eternal king. Only now we're in chapter 5 of Hebrews and it turns out he wasn't just declared king in that moment. There was, in fact, a dual declaration made concerning Jesus' vocation now in his exalted state. The pastor in our passage in Hebrews 5 this morning goes back to Psalm 2, verse 7. But then he adds to it a second declaration by the Father, this time of the priestly office of the exalted son. And guess what psalm he's quoting from? Psalm 110. Only this time it's verse 4. Same object, same person, same person that Psalm 110 verse 1 was being spoken of. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, <laughs> no other place in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 4 quoted. I mean, other than later on in Hebrews. Hebrews is unique in this regard. And I know that there's lots of questions about Melchizedek. I'm going to defer that until Hebrews 7, because that's where the pastor hits this head on. This is just the introduction of this subject. He returns to it full force in Hebrews chapter 7. So we'll deal with it then. For now, the point is simply this. The consequence when Jesus now exalted 
the consequence of his incarnation, his obedient life, his death, his resurrection, the Son of God now being exalted, is that he is declared to be both eternal king and eternal priest by the word of God the Father. All of it to bring about our salvation, as we'll see. So now, we go quickly to now the, the last part the sufficient ministry of the new high priest. The pastor's now established that he is designated the eternal high priest by the words of Psalm 110, verse 4. So now we go to verses 7 and 10 that describe this high priestly activity. And I'll just note that what we have here is three sentences in the English. If you were to look at a Greek Bible, as a couple of you do, this is all one sentence now, verses 7 to 10. Actually, it's just one part of one sentence. Why? Because the whole thing is describing the Christ of verse 5, you see. That's the point. The one whom God has just addressed as king and priest. And so as there were three things to say about the old covenant high priest, I've got three corresponding things to say about the new covenant high priest. I've already alluded to them, so we'll move quickly and, and do this a little bit more closely. The three points are actually in reverse order. The last thing we talked about regarding the old covenant high priest was the nature of his sacrifices, right? He had to make sacrifices for his own sins. Here now we consider first the offering of the new high priest in verse 7. I think the contrast is that whereas the old high priest offered sacrifices for his own sins, Jesus offers himself. And he does it knowingly. And he does it for the sins of others. Now, you may say, where's his offering of himself? Well, it's explicit in the fact that the same terminology is being used for offering in verse 7 here, as is used in verses 1 and 3 earlier. So in verse 7 it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, that's the word, he offered up what? Prayers and supplications, we've got to think about what he's praying for. Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him, meaning Jesus, from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Oh, there's about seven interpretive challenges in that verse. But you can't miss at least this basic point. The incarnate Son of God is praying to the one who can deliver him from death for something. He's totally dependent upon the Father. He's fully human. This is a description of the days of his flesh. I think the key interpretive question to ask is, to what did those prayers and supplications that Jesus offered, what did they, to what did they pertain? And I think the short answer to that is that ultimately Jesus was praying to the Father regarding his death for us. This is the culmination of his holy, obedient life 
right? The language of loud cries and tears. The fact that it says he prayed to him who was able to save him from death. This has to suggest that in view here is Jesus's own death, I think. I think that's a natural way to understand it. But hear me, I think it would be wrong to read these verses to say that Jesus was praying that he wouldn't die. No, I think that's a misunderstanding. Now, I'm certainly aware of the gospel passages in which Jesus asks that the cup be taken from him if possible. Because Jesus is a human being. He certainly did wish there could be another way. But there wasn't. And the scriptures are overwhelmingly clear that even as Jesus made that request, he knew and he never wavered from the fact that it was to do the will of his father that he had come into the world. That meant ultimately that the son would die for the sins of God's people. And Jesus knew that. John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you hear that? I do not think that Hebrews 5 verse 7 is saying Jesus was praying not to die. I think what it's saying is that Jesus knew something deeper. Of course, he didn't want to go to the cross as a man, but he knew his father. He knew his father was the God who could raise the dead. I mean, even Abraham knew that, according to Hebrews 11, verse 19. It's faith. Jesus prays in faith to the one who was able to save him from death, not meaning to prevent him from having to die. Frankly, I think this is a, not a great way to translate the Greek. I think this needs to be translated that Jesus prayed to the one who was able to save him out of death. It's ek thanatu, you Greeklings, from out of death, from out of the realm of death. Hear the difference? Jesus' trust in the Father as the God who can raise the dead meant that he utterly depended on his Father to do that. Only his Father could save him out of death. Now, naturally, verse 7 then, you read it as Jesus praying in Gethsemane, perhaps, or Jesus crying out from the cross, and those moments are definitely included here. But it's not just limited to that. This is the scope of Jesus' entire purpose for his obedient life. Verse 7 begins by saying it was during the days of his flesh that Jesus made this offering of prayer, not just on one night or one day, but during all the days of his humanity. So that I think the point is that this kind of utter dependence upon God to do in his death what he knows his father wants to do, is what characterizes the son's earthly life in its entirety. Gethsemane is the end of a life of obedience to the father. All the gospels portray the death of Jesus as the culmination of his obedience. It is his greatest trial, to be sure. It comes after a lifetime of walking by faith, you see. 
Jesus Christ is, you know, the ultimate hero of the list of faith in chapters 11 and the beginning of 12. He is the pillar. His death was the offering of his obedient humanity to God. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. I'd go so far as to suggest that the prayers and supplications that Jesus offered there, I think they're prayers for us. I think Jesus knew why he was going to die and he was praying that his death and the deliverance from his death would be for us. I can't prove it, but I think it fits the logic of the text. And he was heard, pastor says. You bet he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. What does that mean? Because of his godly fear, i.e. his faith. He was willing to follow his Father's will to the uttermost, which means for him the cross. Yes, he was heard. And his prayers for himself, but I think also for us, are answered fully and triumphantly. When? Well, in his resurrection and ascension. Uh, you and I need to see that this becomes the key to answering all prayers for deliverance and promises of blessing in the scriptures. To apply this in our own life, God will answer these prayers. He may answer prayer for deliverance or healing in this life. He will answer those prayers in the Son, brothers and sisters. We need to be bold to trust this for ourselves and for others. In his exaltation, Jesus was declared to be the eternal priest able now to save those because of his sacrifice to save those whom the father has given him john 6 verses 38 and 39 jesus says for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me hear that way jesus is thinking but do what? Raise it up on the last day. That's what Christmas is about, dear friends. We're totally out of time. Very quickly then, since that never stops me. Whereas the old high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice for us. So then secondly, the old high priest, of course, was sinful. Well, obviously, not Jesus. Verse 8 instead focuses here on Jesus' obedience, which characterizes his whole human life, right? Although he was a son, the verse begins. The meaning in the NIV is more clear. It says, son though he was, he was the son. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Not obedience of suffering because of sins, like us. <laughs> no, he was without sin. The meaning is Jesus Christ learned or experienced what it was like to be perfectly obedient, though that obedience would mean unrelenting antagonism from the world. He was willing to do it. He would persevere in that obedience. He would always, always live in dependence upon God, his Father, even unto death. 
To say that Jesus learned obedience means simply that he practiced obedience. Okay? Don't make it too complicated. It means he had faith. He was fully assured of his father's promises. For him and for us, the son would faithfully endure every temptation, every suffering through his whole life, culminating in the cross. His life of perfect obedience unto death is what was accepted by God who heard him. That was his offering. And so then you come thirdly and finally here to the effectiveness of this new high priest. Verses 9 and 10. It's, it's cosmic. It's everything. The old high priest could do no more than, the old high priest could do no more than just deal gently. <laughs> Jesus as high priest is totally effective and being made perfect, it says. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which again is going to launch us towards chapter 7 where the pastor picks up that thread and runs with it. The point is the goal has been reached. His eternal priestly vocation has been perfectly attained. That's the perfection. He has perfectly attained his role of high priest. He sits at the right hand of God as the only effective mediator for salvation. The Son provides access to life with God. By His sacrifice, we're forgiven our sins. And by the grace He gives us, we are strengthened to live like He did, by faith to the end. Which, of course, is why this salvation is for all who obey Him, you see? The Son has become this Savior through obedience, and obedience is what He brings about in the lives of His people, in you and in me, that they may finally enter into God's holy presence. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.